Chapter 10, Play and Create. Creativity and play unlock inner resources for dealing with stress, solving problems, and enjoying life. When we are creative, we are resourceful. And we problem solve in new and original ways, which fuels our courage. Our thinking expands and our connections with ourselves and others deepen. When I was designed instructional units, I lose myself in research and planning. One year, creating a sixth grade humanities unit, I contemplated the art of our ancient ancestors. Deep in the cave of southern France and Spain, where great concentrations of prehistoric paintings are found, the walls are covered with running horses, rolling cows, swimming stags, and fighting bison. Early human art had always captivated me, and now I had the chance to read up on the latest findings from paleontologists. My husband Stacy is an artist, and at one point I asked him why he thought the artist, the artist of Laxawa painted animals. Whoever painted them loved lines and movement, he said. When I was a kid, I sketched horses for, the, for those reasons. I wanted to capture their movement. Scientists who study cave paintings also seek to explain the purpose behind the art. They tell us that the ancient humans wanted to understand how herds moved and how animals behaved so that they could figure out how to hunt them. Or they theorize that people painted themselves killing animals as a way to represent past or future hunting successes. Overwhelmingly, these interpretations relate to human understandings and dominating nature, and there is always functionality ascribed to the purpose of the paintings. As we look at the art, and I wondered more about why ancient humans painted, Stacy said, maybe they were just trying to capture the essence of the animals, and maybe the paintings, painters just love painting. That's why I paint, he said. Why does there need to be a purpose beyond the love of movement of animals, the materials, and the process? Maybe the reason the ancient artists painted was because they loved to paint. Of course, we don't know why these theories of the cave artist's purpose is correct, but that idea unsettled me. I'm purpose-driven. I have always been, and I consider it a personal strength. I yearn for my daily actions to have meaning and a reason, but there's a downside to ascribing purpose to every action. Being so results-oriented reduces the potential for pure play and perhaps creativity. <clears throat> artists and philosophers have long debated whether art needs to have a purpose or what purpose art should play. Related are differences between creating and appreciating art. In some way, they serve the same role in our lives. Both help us access creative, abstract, wider ways of thinking. But our experience interacting with creative world exists on a continuum. At one end, we consume or appreciate art, perhaps around the middle, we play and at the end, we create art. At each point on the, on the continuum, we activate different parts of our mind, hearts, and spirits. It's likely that the greatest opportunity for cultivating resilience lies in the most active point, in creating art. In the exploration of play, creativity, and art, questions arise. Is play a cursor to, play, to creativity? Are all creative expressions art? Is playful, Playful work and oxymoron. As I've contemplated these questions, I found myself falling into a logical trap, wanting to find a correlation between play, creativity, and art, considering whether a, psychological, a, a cycle or a symbolic relationship is more appropriate. I want to nail down these distractions. Uh, I'm sorry. I want to nail down these distinctions, contain them to a linear graphic in order to honor the essence of the activity, 
be it play, creation, or art. These questions feel both philosophical and practical, and I don't have answers. I invite you into this exploration. Perhaps you can find answers by playing around with the questions. I'm hoping that if you're reading this chapter in the spring, you'll have a chance to incorporate the habit into your spring break. Regardless of when you're reading this, I would bet that you're overdue for a creative break. Maybe it's time for a mini creative boot camp. Strive to incorporate creativity and play into staff meetings, weekends, and even into your instruction, and you'll become more resilient. Refine your ability to appreciate and generate art of all kinds, and you'll most likely enjoy life more. Why we need to play every day. I was working at home one day when my son, then five, hovered next to me and said, I'm lonely, please play with me. I was only a quarter of the way through reading 120 student book logs, but I was tired of him. I was tired of telling him that I had to work. I took off my glasses, put down my pen and agreed. Let's have a water fight, he said, and he ran outside to gather supplies. It was a hot spring afternoon. I can do this, I thought. I can be fun. It takes me a little effort sometimes. An hour later, I begged for a break. I hadn't even been that hard to pick up the water toys and chase each other around the yard with no other goal than to squirt his little body. As I lay in the sun in the driveway, soaking and hot out of breath, I felt proud of myself. It wasn't that hard, I acknowledged, and it was fun. When I returned to the stack of book logs, I noticed that I felt more energized. All the running and laughing must have oxygenated my brain, I thought, but I also felt happier. My mind felt clearer, and it felt easier to focus. Some years later, when I read Stuart Brown's book, Play, How It Shapes the Brain, Opens the Imagination and Invigorates the Soul, I recalled this afternoon of water fighting and recognized it as embodying the very definition of play. What is play? What did you love to do when you were a child? What could you lose yourself in for hours? Maybe it was reading fish, fiction, building Lego cities, climbing trees, dressing up, and staging elaborate tea parties or drawing horses. Can you remember that feeling? How would you describe it? When was the last time you did something that was enjoyable and all-consuming? Play, by definition, is something we do because it's fun and not because it helps us reach a goal. Experts say that the key to getting the most out of, our, out of play is to incorporate it into our lives and not to regulate it to vacation. I've taken the research on this topic very seriously as I'm committed to boosting my own resilience and of course, yours. <clears throat> A large set of scientists who study play include neurologists, developmental biologists, psychologists, and social scientists have concluded that play serves a critical role in the development of animal species. These researchers have written volumes explaining how play shapes brains, makes animals smarter and more adaptable, fosters empathy, and makes possible complex social groups. And for human, play lies at the core of creativity and innovation. But play serves an even greater purpose. Recall a time when you feel most alive. Take a moment to close your eyes and remember that time to let yourself be back in that memory. Most of you will have remembered a time when you were engaged in some form of play, something that was deeply pleasurable, energizing, revitalizing, and in living. Yet when was the last time you engaged in activity just for the pleasure of it? 
Children are experts at play. It's natural and instinctive to them. And in some ways, it's their work. They can commit to hours of building a Lego structure or to play make-believe with stuffed animals. They are playing very seriously. When we get older, however, we're told that playing is a waste of time. We are focused on productive and the busyness of our lives take over. Stuart Brown has made it his life's mission to bring more play back into the lives of adults. In addition to authoring play, he's the founder of the Institute for Play. His core message is that just a little bit of non-productive play will make us more productive, invigorated, and resilient. Stuart reminds us that without play, the world would be pretty grim, as play is often the basis of art, games, books, sports, movies, fashion, and music. In fact, Brown argues that play is the basis of what we think of as a civilization. Play is a vital essence of life. According to Brown, play has the following attributes. <clears throat> Apparent purposefulness. It's done for its own sake and not for any particular reason. Voluntary. It's not obligated or required by duty. Inherent attraction. It's fun and it makes you feel good. Freedom from time. You lose a sense of passage of time. Diminished conscientious of self. You stop worrying about whether or not you look good or stupid. In imaginary play, you might even be a different self. You're fully in the zone. Improvisational potential. You're open to do things in a variety of ways. You get new ideas. And the continuation desire. You want to keep doing it. <clears throat> now think of something you love to do that might be play. How does it measure up as these criteria? It's okay if you find that things that you love to do, but it is, it's okay if you find that there are things you love to do that don't meet every criterion. For example, maybe you love to hike, but one of the reasons you do is because it's a good exercise and it helps you stay healthy. Keep on hiking, but also challenge yourself to occasionally do something that's purely play. Similarly, true play is also non or low competitive play. Sometimes when people play golf or basketball, or some other sport, the element of competition overshadows the pure fun. <clears throat> also, binging on Netflix isn't considered play. Being too passive in an activity diminishes its play value. Perhaps watching a movie can be justified as play, but as you make your way through the entire series, the benefits of play are undermined. Here's another way to think about it. As I noted this in the chapter, there's a continuum of play activities with appreciation and absorption on one end and the creation on the other. You might appreciate and enjoy listening to music, and this can produce some of the relaxation and pleasure indicative of play. But if you create music, belt out a song or tinker around the piano, you recap the full benefits of play. What are the benefits of play? Whenever I play, I remember how good it feels. It doesn't take much for me to get absorbed in blowing bubbles in the park or searching for sea glass on the beach. But then I forget. Of course, early childhood educators and kindergarten teachers know how important play is, and in recent decades have advocated for it to remain a central part of the experience in school for young children. But if you're like me and many others, reminders help us see the benefit for big and little people. Let's review what the experts have concluded are the benefits of play. Play alleviates stress. 
It triggers the release of endorphins, the body's natural feeling good chemicals. Play improves relationships. Sharing laughter and fun can foster empathy, compassion, trust, and intimacy with others. Play doesn't have to be a specific activity. It can also be a state of mind. Developing a playful nature can help you loosen up in a stressful situation, break the ice with strangers, and make new friends. Play improves brain function. Playing chess, completing puzzles, or pursuing other fun activities that challenge the brain can help prevent memory problems. The social interaction involved in playing many of these games is an added benefit. Play stimulates the minds and boosts creativity. Young children often learn best when they are playing, and that principle applies to adults as well. You'll learn a task better when it's fun, and you're in a relaxed and playful mood. Play can also stimulate your imagination, helping you adapt and problem solve. Play keeps us feeling young and energetic. In the words of George Bernard Shaw, we don't stop playing because we grow old. We grow old because we stop playing. Playing can boost our energy and vitality and even improve our resistance to disease. In fact, it might help us just live a little longer. A group of scientists spent 15 years studying Alaskan grizzlies and concluded that the bears who played the most survived the longest. I hope those scientists had fun studying the bears. Some years ago, when I first read Stuart's Brown book, I described, <clears throat> I described the benefits of play to an acquaintance who was a high school French teacher in her mid-50s. She listens to me as I recited statistics and made my case, and then she interrupted me. I don't need convincing, she said. I made a commitment to play about 15 years ago after I got divorced. Play isn't just a thing you do. It's an attitude I take towards life. Yes, I love to dance. I wear sparkling nail polish. I make mobiles out of found objects. I cook with spices. But more than all of that, I just don't take life too seriously. Small, regular doses of play are powerful. With all of these benefits, play is like an essential multivitamin that we have to be taken daily. When we're playing, we're creating new imaginative cognitive combinations. Our brain gets to try out new things without threatening our physical or emotional well-being. When the risks are small and fun is present, we more readily learn new skills. What might be possible if we incorporate more play into our work? We could find spaces here and there where we could weave in play and make teaching or leading or coaching easier and more enjoyable. Although it would be fantastic if you could frequently raft down rivers or engage in whatever large-scale play meets your fancy, regular play will contribute the most to your emotional well-being. If you can play every day, you'd probably be among the happiest and most resilient people in the world. But start with a goal to play every week. It's never too late to develop your playful, humorous side. Set aside regular playtime and play in public or in private. The more you play, joke and laugh the easier it becomes. Let the good times roll. Okay, so when you're ready to play, where to start, what to do. Begin by brainstorming play activities of different sizes. For some play, you'll want a day, whereas others might need only five minutes. For me, dangling a string in front of my kitty is a quick way for me to dip into play. I also find preparing an elaborate dinner lots of fun, but it may take the entire day. 
Perhaps among my all-time favorite activities is anything I can do in a warm ocean, float, snorkel, and dive under the waves. But that doesn't happen very often. So as you build up a bank of activities for your playtime, include some that you can engage in easily. Another way to build a bank of play activities is to ask others about how they play and create. Ask your colleagues this question. Ask your supervisors. Recently, I asked some educators how they play, and their answers I heard included dressing up in a wild costume, dancing through a field of flowers, plinking away at the piano, making a, a, a huge meal, raising a dog on a beach, making pyramids of Play-Doh balls, and experimenting with hair dyes. Art. Where can play take us? In this conversation about play and creativity, we must acknowledge art, visual art, music, theater, film, performance, and so on, and its role in resilience. When you think about art, what thoughts come to mind? Which feelings surface? When I asked educators these two questions, here were the responses I commonly heard. I'm not good at art, so I feel anxious. Art is boring. I think about being bored in museums. I wish I had more opportunity to do art. I loved art classes as a kid. Sometimes it's nice to look at, but what's the point? In order to embrace play, it helps to have an appreciation for art and the time to explore it. Human beings make art. According to the archeological record, our ancient homo sapien ancestors made art before they waged a war or built cities or farmed crops. They sought to represent and think about their world pictorially and symbolically, and they created music and most likely dance long before they picked up swords and planted seeds. The oldest known instruments are 43,000 year old bone and ivory flutes. On cave walls in Australia, Southern Africa, Europe, and Indonesia, paintings of animals, human figures, and hands date back 35,000 years. Around 30,000 year, years ago, sculptor in the area of South Germany carved ivory figurines of animals and women. Although we certainly don't know why our ancestors created this art, they did. The call to create and to create things of beauty is primal. Alan D. Botton and John Armstrong have written a magnificent book called Art as Therapy. They poetically and visually present the, the premise that art in which they include design, architecture, and craft is a therapeutic medium that can help guide, exhort, and console its viewers, enabling them to become better versions of themselves. D. Botton and Armstrong propose seven functions for creating and consuming art that are useful to consider. One, we create art to remember. Think about writing and photography. Two, we create and or appreciate art because it gives us hope and optimism. Art teaches us how to suffer more successfully. Number three, art helps us rebalance emotionally and understand ourselves, whether by creating it or experiencing it. Four, a work of art, think poetry or song lyrics, can illuminate a mood or give an experience a clear expression. Number five, artistic creations can challenge our thoughts and values, pushing us to grow. And number six, art helps us appreciate what is always around us, 
the values of ordinary daily life and what we might take for granted. This little book, a work of art itself, is worth having on your shelves. Art, resistance, and resilience. A novel, poem, movie, or play can shatter our misconceptions of each other and break down the walls that separate us. Can you call to mind a piece of art that's helped you see and feel experience of someone you perceived as different? Most recently, the film Midnight did this for me. It's a gorgeous piece of movie making that might wrench your heart open, yet leave it more whole than it was before. Art is a vehicle for connection and empathy. It combats loneliness, alienation, and dehumanization, and it helps us understand ourselves better. <clears throat> Creating art that does this is an act of political res resistance against those who seek to divide us. Art has long been an essential tool for social justice. It has proven itself as such for centuries in various forms, from satirological plays protest anthems, street theaters to posters to puppets to cartoon to morals and more. When artists creatively express political messages, a unique form emerges that inspires emotions, including humor, hope, grief, and commitment. Consider, for example, the underwater sculpture in the Caribbean Sea that evokes the Africans who were thrown off the slave ships during the Middle Passage. The sculpture created by James DeCares Taylor is a life-size circle of people holding hands and facing outward. It's eerie and devastating. Google it. See how it makes you feel. After that, take a look at Picasso's, well, I know I'm going to butcher this, guys, Geronica again. This is how art boosts my resilience. A painting, poem, sculpture, song, or novel that conveys an injustice unlocks my empathy moves me to sadness or anger. Yet perhaps because the message is conveyed artistically, I also experience optimism. I'm reminded that human beings have the capacity to commit acts of both tremendous violence and stunning beauty. The moralization and permanence of the artwork also makes me feel hopeful. Because of this artist's work, the experience of the suffering will not be forgotten. During the course of writing this book, I visited Berlin a city that once was the epic center of the most horrific violence of the 20th century. You can't visit Berlin without being reminded of the consequences of fascism due in part to art throughout the city. All around Berlin laid into sidewalks are stubble stones, cobblestones that commemorate Holocaust victims. <coughs> Excuse me. In 1992, German artist Gunther Demig began laying these brass plaques in front of the last place of residency for a victim of the Nazi persecutions. The stones typically contain the name of the person, his or her date of birth, and the date the person was deported, and if known, the date of death, and the name of the concentration camp where he or she died. As early of 2017, Demnig had laid over 56,000 stubble stones in 22 European countries. You might be standing outside a German cafe, enjoying a delicious strudel and admiring the architecture and look down to see a stubble stone, and you are made to remember. The great majority of educators I've met aspire to positively impact the lives of children. 
Embedded in our teaching is the social justice mission to leave the world better than we found it. Because of the daily wear and tear on the vision we aspire to build, we need regular doses of inspiration and kindling for our spirits. Art can provide that infusion of hope and optimism that keeps us moving onward, and that reminds us of our innate capacity to create beauty. When times gets hard and the batter and bruises of our spirits, it's more important than ever to pick up our pens and paintbrushes. Writer Toni Morrison speaks to those with creative inclinations who feel demoralized in this stunning passage. This is precisely the time when artists go to work. There is no time for despair, no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilization heals. Resilience is what enables you to bounce back after a storm. It's the internal reserves of strength that fuel your ability to live your life and do what you were born to do. As I will touch more on in chapter 12, art emerges from the realm of transcendent or sacred or spiritual. When we connect that with energy source in the world and refuel our inner reserves, we become immeasurably stronger. Take a few minutes now to contemplate the forms of art that you connect to, your deepest wells of resilience. Perhaps you take a break from reading to dip your toes into those warm waters. Resilience is cultivated a little bit at a time. Creativity as a habit and disposition. Recall the last time you wore a costume. Maybe it was Halloween and you went to a party or trick-or-treated or entertained your students with your alter ego. What did it feel like to be someone or something else? How did that allow you to do? How did it shift your sense of yourself? When I ask educators these questions, they smile and unselfconsciously, there's a twinkle in their eye and they share amusing antidotes. Dressing up or even just putting on a mask is a low risk, easy way to access your creativity by bypassing your mind's anxious self. It's a shortcut to the parts of ourselves that crave expansive expression. It allows us to try things we otherwise wouldn't try or to say different things, or to feel differently. Imagine what could happen in the classroom if you came from a place of otherworldly power. How might teaching or leading be different if every day you wore a Wonder Woman costume? Creativity is a habit and disposition. It's hard to say when it shifts from being a habit into a disposition, or whether it can be a disposition without being acted on through habits. Just about every research study on resilience identifies creativity as a key trait, behavior, or disposition. Most of the research is not worth reading. Iconically, it's boring, but the conclusion is worth considering. Creativity is essential. It's simply the ability to dream things up and make them happen, to live driven by curiosity and not by fear, as the writer Elizabeth Gilbert names in its title of her book, Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. Let's dig a little deeper into into the whys of creativity and then into how you cultivate it. Why we need creativity. Rationale analytical minds often need convincing as to why they should try something creative. At least mine does still. In spite of the deep appreciation for the role that creativity has played in my life, I still find myself wanting research that explains why it's good to be creative and why making art is a valid use of time. 
Creative processes enable us to see the root of the problem or see a situation in a different light. We can make connections between seemingly unrelated phenomenon and gain new perspective. Creativity and its cousins, imagination and innovation, are the missing ingredients in many school reform efforts. School transformation almost always relies on deep creative thinking. Let's consider a common, common complaint that teachers have, their students' behavior. In fact, in research on middle school teachers, student behavior is the top reason cited for burnout. In many schools I've worked with, administrators respond to student misbehavior by creating procedures and consequences, posting rules over the school, increasing staff presence in the hallways, and printing out behavior contracts for students who repeatedly break the rules. These technical solutions sometimes work to control student behavior for the short term, but relying on a cultural policy leaves teachers less than satisfied. These schools are sometimes quiet and calm as students walk through the hallways and meet rows silently with their hands at their sides looking straight ahead, but to me they also feel sad and a little scary. I wouldn't want to be a teacher in one of those schools. I wouldn't want my child to be a student in one. To have a healthy learning community, kids need to adhere to high behavioral expectations, but we also can change how we get kids to engage in these behaviors. This is where creativity comes in. Here's another argument for indulging in creativity. It's good for your brain. It gets your alpha waves going. Alpha waves are signals in your brain that closely correlate with states of relaxation. Scientists have found that when people are relaxed, they're much more likely to have a big aha moment and those moments when impossible problems seem to solve themselves. This is why when you're going around and around a problem, the best thing to do is to take a walk, play table tennis, or take a long shower. These activities produce alfalfa waves in your brain. Would you indulge in creativity or play in a staff meeting if I told you that it's good for your emotional health? It is. Numerous studies show that activities such as drawing, knitting, or creative writing raise serotonin levels and decrease anxiety. Used therapeutically, creativity allows us to explore emotions and perhaps heal the wounds in ways that talking about experiences can't. Creative expression can also boost empathy and understanding for each other. And because failures and mistakes are inevitable when creating engaging in creative expression provides opportunities for strengthening resilience because setbacks and many breakdowns often, or I'm sorry, offer us opportunities to get up and try again. Let me take one final plea. Indulge in creativity because it is your birthright. Creative expression is a way and part of who you are. You won't find a single culture in the world in which people don't create expressions of beauty. In the same way that I hope you tend to your body and care for your emotional self, I urge you to nourish your creative spirit. You deserve it. How to boost your creativity. Creativity is both a state of mind and a thing you do. When you're in a creative state of mind, you find yourself asking open-ended, truly curious questions. You'll gaze out the window and daydream. You look at two foods that are usually not combined and think, what would happen if I ate them together? You'll think about how Billy always gets in trouble during afternoon recess, and you'll wonder what might happen if you tried this or that or even that. Creativity is born from curiosity, but we can be curious without being creative. Once 
you're asking questions. You need to take action. You breathe life into your curiosity and it becomes creative, creativity and, and, and entity all of its own. As you start creating, don't be surprised if you experience fear and find yourself at a juncture. You might see your creative idea wanting to take flight and materialize or wanting to hide. Try using some of the strategies I've suggested in this, in this book for responding to strong emotions. And you have another option. Just do it. Just act on your creative ideas and see what happens. Combine those two foods. Invite Billy to be your recess helper. Paint your bathroom royal blue. Taking creative risks get easier with time. If you're itching to explore your creativity and you're not sure how to start, do something with your hands. Get a tub of Play-Doh, make long snakes, and then coil them into a bowl, and then smash them into a ball. Do finger painting. Bake bread, plant flowers, draw circles and stars with fat crayons. Getting your hands dirty helps settle an anxious mind. Reclaiming your right to artistic expression. Artistic expression. Art has been regulated to second or third class status in the United States for far too long. It's been constrained to a 40 minute period once a week or an elective class in high school, or it's been regulated or re regulated to the sterile and institutional walls of museums in our major cities. In some schools, art has been invited in as long as it agrees to integrate or to serve a higher master. Art integration has served to help students understand scientific concepts, remember literature, or demonstrate the analysis of a historical event, but it must be in serve to a core subject. Art has been useful in these moments and it deserves recognition, but it rarely gets to be its own thing, to be experienced just for what it is. There are contextual reasons why we're afraid of art, disconnected from our artistic sides, and perhaps even afraid of artists. Appreciating art, letting it sink into our weary bones will boost your resilience, but to maximize its potential, we all need to get our hands dirty and make it. If you have a fear of art, if your immediate response is, <laughs> I'm not an artist, I'm bad at art, there is help for you. You might find, you might reframe your definition of art and what it means to create it. Remember, you are not aspiring to create objects to display in a museum. You must reign in your perfectionist tendencies and your insecurities about what others will think and your fear of failure. Then perhaps alone with support and guidance, You'll want to dabble in many forms and play with a range of expressions to find what feels best to you. There is a vehicle out there through which to channel your creativity. It might be a clarinet, calligraphy pen, a bottle of spray paint, a pair of knitting needles, a Nikon, a set of colored pencils, or a pair of tap shoes, but it's out there. You just need to look and play to see what feels good. I've met many people who were afraid of making art, but after exploration, they liberated their creative souls and found a means of expression. You're likely to have a yearning for creative expression, and you have a right to it. <clears throat> Disposition. Courage. The, res the resilient are courageous. When we are called to be creative, we must access reservoirs of courage for creativity without risk, risk reaps shallow rewards. 
All of the dispositions of resilience are strengthened by courage, purposefulness, acceptance, optimism, curiosity. To take any of these stances implies risk. Think of a recent challenging moment at work. Recall your reaction. How much courage would you say you had in that moment? What might have happened had you had more courage? What would you have said or done? When I encounter obstacles and find myself down in the dust, hands shaky and raw with scrapes, when I wonder how I'll rebound and get through yet another setback, courage flows, floods my muscles and makes me stand. Courage allowed me to leave a job at a toxic school where I wasn't fulfilling my purpose as an educator. Courage opened my eyes to my ineffective behaviors as a coach and enabled me to change those. Courage propels me onto stages where I share personal stories about challenges as an educator. What has your courage helped you do in your life? In which parts of your life could you use more courage? What might more courage allow you to do? Given the prevalence of fear in our lives and in our world, we'd surely benefit from a deep and sustained exploration of courage. We benefit from telling consuming stories of courage and from choreographing interpretive dances to courage and from building monuments to the kind of courage that will strengthen our resilience and allow us to transform the world. The burning question is this, where does courage come from and how do we activate it in ourselves? Courage may not have a definite origin, but when you trace back your courage, you are likely to see seeds in your own behaviors and in the actions of those around you. The seeds of our courage lie scattered throughout our individual, family, and social histories. Each of us at some point in our life said or did something that was courageous, most likely as recently as yesterday. Recognize those little acts of courage. They count. Within our family histories, many of us have people who took big or little courageous steps. The aunt who never married and lived out her dream of traveling the world collecting fabric. The great-great-grandparents who left their family to go west where the weather was warmer and they could farm. The single mother who raised three kids while battling depression. The brother-in-law who came out to his homophobic mother. You have courage in your DNA. I'm absolutely sure of it. Find these stories and share them with others. When you share your stories with others, you strengthen your courage. Then discover and channel the courage of others. Your commonality as a human being permits you to do this. Pay them homage and let the strength of those who have gone before you or who have fighting honorable battles now fuel your own courage. Draw inspiration from the courage. Uh, imagine the particles of courage which are infinite and abundant, infusing your reserves of courage. Draw inspirations from those who escaped from slavery or fought fascists or went door to door registering voters or toiled in the strawberry fields demanding fair labor practices. History overflows us with stories of courage. We just need to find them. I have long been on a quest to seek out courageous, courageous in my family, in my community, in my history. I want to hear those stories to understand that what enabled these people to get up another day and do what they needed to do. I have found these stories in the slums of Nairobi among the Santrios in Havana, in historical fiction and memoir, in elementary classrooms in Oakland, and in the lives of my ancestors. 
In my inquiries into my own family history, there are survivors with unimaginable courage. My Jewish great-grandmother, who literally carried my grandfather out of Europe, where he had stayed, he would have been killed. I find courage on my father's side in another family of Jews who some 500 years ago converted to Christianity to survive the Spanish Inquisition. But I also find stories of oppression and violence. The Spanish colonialists who raped my indigenous ancestors. Her courage I keep, his violence I release. This is not to say that we do not have to reckon with the ugly parts of history or to acknowledge the privileges that we live with because of the actions of our ancestors. But when selecting narratives to fuel our courage, we can be disconcerting. And through the acts of looking at these, at those ancestors with actions may have been irreprehensible, we build courage. Select and keep the stories that make you strong. Use that courage to make right the injustices of the past and the present. Now go. Identify those DNA strands. Absorb the courage of others. The resilience are contagious. The healing slaves. The anthropologist Angulus Arion explains that in many traditional cultures, when an ill person goes to healer, he or she is asked four questions. When did you stop singing? When did you stop dancing? When did you stop telling your story? And when did you stop sitting in silence? Arian calls these singing, dancing, telling your stories, and sitting in silence the healing slaves. Salvies, sorry. Salvies. Ugh, I find this eradicative way to think about illness and healing. If I imagine my life without creative expression, without people who listen to me, without moments for inner reflection and contemplation, I'd know I'd feel unwell. When I apply these criteria to the health of the physical entities of a school or district, I gain new insight. I have worked in schools and organizations which interpersonal staff toxicity was so high it was dripping down the walls like an oily sludge and saturating carpets. In those toxic establishments, children and staff were frequently all sick and there was no creative expression, no sharing of stories or listening to each other and no reflection. Conversely, in schools in which I've had the greatest organizational health where teacher retention is, is highest and children are thriving, there is student art on the walls and adults listen to young people. I've even seen periods of the day when the whole school goes silent for quiet time. I'm not speaking abstractly. You can see these kinds of organizational health if you visited Cal Prep, a six to 12 public school in Richmond, California. As you walk through the door, the staff warmly welcomes you. The art covers the walls. In classrooms, young people are engaged in critical and creative conversation. They dive deep into content and make connections between subjects that give them deeper insight than most college classes ever offer. Teachers facilitate, facilitate learning from the sidelines and undertake inquiry projects through which they refine their practice. Staff turnover is extremely low and well-being and joy permeate the school. How did this school come to be this way? It's due to the transformative leadership of its humble and fierce principal, Javier Caraba Walternos. Javier has developed high-functioning collaborative teams by allocating time and resources to staff learning and growing. He also honors the creative needs of students and staff and provides time to share stories and sit in con contemplative silence. 
and he attends his own well-being in these areas as well. For the last several years, Cal Prep has anchored my conviction that we can transform schools and that creativity plays a central role. Play, art, and creativity are not supplemental extras, hobbies, or filler activities for when you've already done this and that. They might be what help us patch up our torn spirits after we've fallen, what, what opened our perception to the beauty and grandeur of the world, and what helped us unlock the doors to transforming our own schools. Go now and let them find a place in your life.